Turn back, if you will, again to Zephaniah chapter 3. Same place it was before. Zephaniah 3. This morning I want to tell you the Christmas story. Not from Matthew, where it starts, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Not from Luke, where we read, There were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Not even from Isaiah 9, where we read, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. This morning I want you to hear the story from the book of Zephaniah. This is a book of the Bible you may have never read. You may have trouble finding it. This book never even mentions Jesus by name. Frankly, does not appear to be a story at all. This book is mostly a terrifying book written to wicked people who frankly don't even care. But by the time we get to the end, we read about things that John was later to describe in his gospel when he's talked about the word dwelling among us full of grace and truth. Our text is uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 20, one of our Advent readings this morning. But that's actually where we're going to get our second point. To understand the significance of our text, you have to read the first two and a half chapters. So this morning, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read them all, but let me summarize those first two and a half chapters in our first point. And then I'll read the, second, the text with the second point in a moment. Our first point is this. God has promised to destroy this wicked world. God has promised to destroy this wicked world. I've been preaching every Sunday for 38 and a half years now, and I've never preached on Zephaniah. This is why. No one wants to preach or hear or even read two and a half chapters of scathing judgment. But that's what we have here. A divine sentence being pronounced. God promising to destroy this wicked world. Oh, make no mistake, this is a universal decree. It applies to the whole world. In case there's any question about that, we hear it right away in the first verses of chapter 1. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. This applies to everything. And in case we think that's only hyperbole, little over-the-top prophetic utterance. In chapter 2, God goes on to name the surrounding nations around Jerusalem upon whom this judgment is coming, concerning the area of Philistia. That's to the west of Jerusalem. He writes, Gaza will be abandoned, Ashkelon left in ruins, Ashdod will be emptied, Ekron uprooted. Those are all towns of Philistia. The word of the Lord is against you, O land of the Philistines. I will destroy you, and none will be left. And then he addresses Moab and Ammon, the lands to the east of Jerusalem. And he says, surely Moab will become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. 
concerning to the people of the south of Jerusalem, the Lord said, you too, O Cushites, will be slain by my sword. And concerning the people to the north, he says, he will stretch out his hand against the north and utter and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh, Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as a desert. This is the carefree city that lived in safely. She said to herself, I am, and there is none besides me. What a ruin she has become. A liar for wild beasts who pass by her and scoff and shake their fi- All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. Make no mistake, God has promised to destroy the wicked world. Oh, but God's most scathing judgment was not upon those pagan nations surrounding Israel. His most scathing judgment for his own covenant people who had forsaken him. The Lord said, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal, the names of the pagan and idolatrous priests, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. You see, God's people had become corrupt at every level. As we read in chapter 3, she obeys no one. She accepts, this is talking about Jerusalem. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are arrogant. They are treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. A wicked city, the city of God. And even when God called his people back, they wouldn't come. We read in chapter 3, I said to the city, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling would not be cut off, nor her, my, her, my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly as they did. So God sent the prophet Zephaniah to declare that his judgment is hanging over the whole world. In 3.8 we read, Therefore declares the Lord, I have decided to assemble the nations and gather the kingdoms, And to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. So what exactly was God talking about with these frightening words? When? Well, ultimately, he's talking about the final judgment day, the great day of the Lord that all the prophets speak of. And, 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 and predict the same kind of destruction. But God was also speaking to people in Zephaniah's day. Wickedness and idolatry were widespread, and God's people had repeatedly compromised their faith. And so the Lord was about to bring the Babylonians upon them and upon other nations around them, all these nations too. God would use the ferocity of the pagan Babylonian army as a tool for judgment. And that's exactly what happened. Jerusalem was overrun, ransacked, burned to the ground while her people were largely killed or deported as slaves. And the same thing happened to many other nations. And God's judgment in judgment also continues to hang over the world. Are not the nations today just as wicked as they were then? Are not God's people just as corrupt and self-serving as they were in Jerusalem? 
Does not the New Testament still say the wrath of God is being revealed against all who suppress God's truth by their wickedness? I know we long for sweet, feel-good Christmas stories, but the condition of the world is bleak. Read the news. Ripe for destruction. And God promises he will destroy it. Which brings us to the last verses of Zephaniah chapter 3. The last half of the last chapter. Let me read it again, verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The sorrows for the appointed feast I will remove from you. They are a burden and a reproach to you. At that time I will deal with all those who oppress you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have been, where have been put to shame. At that time I will gather you. At that time I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the people of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Second point. In Jesus, God has given us himself. In Jesus, God has given us himself. Tim Keller has an illustration that I've heard him use a lot of times in various sermons. He says, uh, a friend comes by and he says, I was at your house and a bill came in the mail, so I paid it for you. Now, how do you respond to that? Keller says. Was it a 15-cent postage due? Or was it a letter from the IRS saying you owe 10 years of back taxes? It depends. And so here, we might read these verses and say, how nice God delights in me. I always thought I was a lovely sort of guy. Everybody delights in me. Oh, but against the backdrop of a death sentence on the whole world, including God's people, God delighting in us is quite another matter. It's absolutely unfathomable after the first two and a half chapters of this book. But what's going on here is even bigger than just God liking us. Notice what the most important thing God promises here. Notice what that is. He says it twice in verse 14 and verse 16. The Lord is with you. That's a promise. The Lord is with you. Wait a minute. That's the name given to the one who was born in Bethlehem, is it not? He will be named Emmanuel, which means God is with us. In Christ, God has come and given himself to us against the backdrop of judgment. And so consider the ways he extends that grace to us. We read several examples here. Verse 14, 
we hear that he makes us to rejoice. Wasn't that the angel's announcement at Jesus' birth? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Verse 15, he takes away our punishment. Again, is this not the one, not about the one of whom the angels told Joseph, Mary will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. In verse 16, we, re- we read that he removes our fear. And sure enough, fear not are the first words the angels said. And how many times did Jesus himself say to us, do not be afraid, fear not, do not be afraid. In verse 19, he promises to rescue the lame and gather the scattered. And and, and was that not the whole ministry of Jesus? He made the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. He saw us as sheep scattered and beaten down without a shepherd. He declared himself the good shepherd who will even leave the 99 safely in the fold and go out and put himself at risk to find one lost lamb. This whole promise of grace appearing, points us to Jesus. It's in Jesus that God has given himself as prophesied by Zephaniah. So here in Zephaniah's prophecy, what happened? What changed the situation from the first two and a half chapters with rebels who had no time for the Lord to disciples finding comfort and hope in Jesus here at the end of chapter 3. Early in the book, we find people just ignoring God's call. And now at the end of the book, they're loving and trusting him. What did they do to change? Wrong question. God, in his grace, changed them and us. We see it back in verse 9. Then, God says, I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. That's interesting because verse 8 says, um, no, verse 7 says that uh, he, he called them, surely you will, will fear me. And they uh, wouldn't. They're still eager to act corruptly. And then in verse Nine, he says, then I will purify their lips that they may call upon the name of the Lord. Remember Isaiah's experience in Isaiah chapter 6? He saw a vision of the Lord with angels surrounding him crying, holy, holy, holy. And he suddenly realized, I am in trouble. I am doomed because I am a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips and I've seen the Holy One. So how did he make himself acceptable? Again, wrong question. You can't make yourself acceptable. It was the Lord who acted in Isaiah 6. The angel of the Lord took a coal from the fire and touched it to Isaiah's mouth, cauterized his lips, purifying them. And so God here says that he will purify the lips of his people, enabling them to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And so throughout Zephaniah, It was not the powerful and the wealthy and the haughty who received grace. It was the needy. It was the weak, the poor, the broken, the refugee, 
We see it in chapter 2 where we read, Seek the Lord, all you humble in the land. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of God's anger. We see it in 3.12. I will leave within you the meek and the humble who trust in the name of the Lord. Later in 3.19, it's those who are pressed, the lame, those who have been scattered, those who, who will be restored. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he came, is it not? He purified the lips of people, enabling them to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And most often he extended that grace to, not to the rich and the powerful, but to the needy and the broken. That was what his mother Mary said. My soul glorifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. And that's what Jesus went about doing. He found the demon-possessed who cried out for him to go away, but he caused them instead to, to cry, Lord, save us. And he pronounced blessing on the poor and the meek and the broken and the grieving, causing those who, who saw their great need to call upon him to save them. Indeed, Jesus says, there's no other way. Unless, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, unless the Father changes his heart and purifies his lips, causing us to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. You see, from beginning to end, It is God's grace which Zephaniah is writing about. An undeserved grace in the face of the promise of judgment. Grace which would appear in Jesus. Grace by which God would call us to himself. Grace in which God receives sinners who come in Jesus' name. And this coming of Emmanuel is not just a change in our legal status, by which our sentence of death is pardoned, and we're given life, though it is that. But it is much more. God has called us into relationship with himself. He gives those who call upon Jesus the right to be called children of God. He says, I will never leave you. He says, ask me for whatever you wish. He says, from now on I call you my friends. He says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Jesus said to Zacharias, the tax collector, today I'm going to your house. And then he says to his disciples, in my father's house are many mansions, and I'm going there to prepare a place that you can come to my house. I will come and take you to my father's house. God has promised to destroy this wicked world. But in the coming of Jesus, God has given us nothing less than himself. Pure grace. Well, the passage ends with this wonderful verse, verse 20, this wonderful picture. At that time I will gather you, at that time I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the people on the earth when I restore your fortune before your very eyes, says the Lord. Michael Card, whose practice has always been to put the scriptures into songs, wrote a song about this verse in Zephaniah. And the promises it contains. So I want to read the words to you. And then we're going to use it as our closing song. It goes like this. Though you're homeless. Though you're alone. 
I will bring you home. Whatever's the matter, whatever's been done, I will be your home. I will be your home. I will be your home. In this fearful fallen place, I will be your home. When time reaches fullness, when I move my hand, I will bring you home. Home to your own place in a beautiful land. I will bring you home. From this fearful fallen place, I will bring you home. The promise of grace from Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word that seems strange to us and foreign to us, but when we unpack it, we see, Lord, that it's exactly consistent with itself, that what you predict in the Old Testament, you fulfill in the New, that all the things you say you will do, you send Jesus to do, and he has done and is doing. We pray we would not miss it, Lord, because it's written in veiled language of the prophets rather than in, 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 in clear, easy reading uh, prose uh, written in our day. Lord, may we listen to what you have to say and think about it and meditate it and make it our own. And may we know your grace, Lord. Change our lips. Enable us, Lord, to forever call upon the name of the Lord, knowing that you save us. In his name we pray. Amen.